You may be seated. This morning, our final scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 15 to 23. This passage takes place after the prophet Nathan has confronted David regarding his great sin with Bathsheba and his conspiracy to put to death and murder Uriah, her husband, all of these things that David did while being the anointed king of God's people. One of the consequences of God's judgment of David's sin in this public and holy office is that his child that he had conceived with Bathsheba would die. This passage then tells us about how David responded to God's judgment and how by the Holy Spirit he understood God's commitment and love for his child even after death. This is a difficult passage, but it is one that is full of God's kindness. Beloved, God's word is more precious than gold, even much fine gold. God's word is sweeter than honey, sweeter even than the drippings of the honeycomb. Listen to it now. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of his child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to the servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? 
I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Thus far, the reading of God's word, it is absolutely true. And it is given to you because your father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Lord, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of our hearts be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We ask this through our rock and redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. One of the great and profound blessings of the Holy Scriptures is that they do not in any way turn away or hide from the pain and difficulty of what it means to live in this fallen world. The scriptures are honest. They are real in the parlance of our current age. And they speak again and again about the pain and suffering that is caused by sin, sickness, and death. They do not hide from these things. And one of the most poignant ways in which the scriptures tell us about what it means to suffer in this world is the way in which they tell us on many occasions the story of parents who experience the death of their children. This is a common theme in the scriptures, and it begins at the very beginning, because the first death in human history, of course, is the death of a child. Yes, a grown man, but still a child of his parents as Adam and Eve grieved the murder of their son Abel at the hand of his brother. Adam and Eve do not themselves experience death immediately in the garden after their great sin, but their first experience of what God meant by death was when they held the broken body of their son in their arms. Then later in Genesis, we read the story of Jacob and how he was deceived by his other sons so that he would believe that Joseph, his beloved son, had been killed. When Joseph's brothers show their father the bloody robe and deceive him and tell him that Joseph is dead, Genesis tells us how Jacob responds In detail, it says, Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many, I'm sorry, mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. What Jacob means by his words is that he will mourn for Joseph all the rest of his life until he himself dies as well. There is no pain in this world like the loss of a child to death. And beloved, you need to know that the scriptures know this, that they dignify the grief of parents who experience this kind of suffering. The scriptures are full of these stories. Think of the pain of Naomi, 
who loses her sons Malhan and Chilion and becomes convinced that God's hand is against her until he slowly woos her back to himself with his steadfast love and kindness. Think of Eli, the high priest of Israel, who when he heard of the death of his sons, wicked as they were, was still so overcome by grief that he fell out of his chair and died himself. Think of Job, who upon hearing of the death of his children, tears his robe and shaves his head and covers himself with ashes. Think of David, who when told of the death of his son Absalom, Absalom, who had just led Israel in rebellion against him, was still overcome with grief and cried out in some of the most poignant and heartbreaking words in all of the scriptures. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Think of Mary standing at Golgotha, watching her son being crucified. The point is, beloved, if you have lost a child, whether in the womb or at any point later in their life, the sorrow that you feel is an ancient sorrow. It is a sorrow that is incredibly common to the experience of humanity throughout all the ages of our existence. It is a sorrow that is as old as the human race, and it is a sorrow, notably, that is shared with some of the greatest saints in all of the scriptures who knew this sorrow as well. And it is a sorrow that the scriptures do not hide from. They do not ignore it or pretend that it does not exist. And my desire is that our church would more and more be a place where we talk about these kinds of things, where we talk about this kind of loss and pain that we bear. In our modern world, where children die with far less regularity in infancy and childhood than they once did, and thanks be to God for that, The most frequent way that we lose children to death is in the womb, especially in miscarriage. Now, miscarriage is a uniquely difficult kind of grief because it is often an experience that is hidden and unseen by others. It is often hard, therefore, to know how to talk openly about the children we have lost in the womb to death. And one of my hopes this morning is that by preaching publicly on this topic, we can become together more and more a community where we share with one another this loss in particular, the loss of miscarriage, which I know many of you are familiar with. This is also a topic that is personal to me because it is a grief that I carry as well. You see, 15 years ago, Amy and I lost a child early in her pregnancy. Amy and I were in our late 20s at the time. We were still young in our marriage. We had two little children already, and we had hope for more 
to come. And I still remember vividly the events of that day, that experience of death and her miscarriage, the shock, the sorrow, the visit from our pastor, the scriptures that he read, the notes and calls and meals that were given to us from family and friends in our church. I still remember the first time I cried about it in the car. Fifteen years later, it's still a grief that I carry. And I regularly imagine and wonder what it would be like to know our son or daughter as the young teenager that they would be now if they had not died before their birth. And I know, friends, that many of you have similar stories, similar griefs. Many of you carry losses even more difficult than the one that I do. Miscarriage is, of course, very common. And in the course of my pastoral ministry, it's a grief that I've entered into again and again with couples in my church here and also in St. Louis, where I served previously. And this morning, I want to be clear, I know that I am not going to be able to somehow assuage all of those wounds put away all of those sorrows for you. That's not my intention. I can't do that. God alone can do that work. And he has said that he won't do it completely and fully until the day of our blessed resurrection from the dead, when he will wipe every tear from every eye. But what I can do this morning is to tell you and proclaim to you and declare to you on the authority of God's word, what I believe the scriptures teach us regarding the salvation of our children who have died even in the womb before they are capable of articulating faith. Often when I meet with couples who have lost a child to miscarriage, they have questions understandably about their baby and where it has gone whether their little son or daughter whom they have lost is with the Lord. And I understand those questions. I have wrestled with them myself. But beloved, if that is a question for you this morning, if that is a question that you ask, I want you to know that you can be confident of this. Your child that you lost in the womb is now, at this very moment, safe with Jesus. That is where he or she is. And they are so safe with him. So safe. They do not suffer. They are kept and protected and hidden and perfectly content as they wait for the resurrection in the arms of their shepherd and savior. And on the last day, know this as well, your lost babies, your sons and daughters, that you did not have an opportunity to know in this life, they will be raised from the dead, just as you will be. And you will know them as your children, for who they are, as your sons and your daughters, risen in glory alive 
forever. And what a blessed day that will be. To be clear, I am telling you these things not because I believe that children are naturally innocent and God simply receives them into his arms. No, beloved. Hear me. Your lost children who have died are saved in just the same way that you are saved. They are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Atoning on their behalf, they are saved by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. They are saved by their union with their Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. And I want to be very clear about this. It is not only me who says these things to you. It is the teaching of the Protestant tradition of our church. It is the teaching of our church. If you look on the back of your order of worship, you can read the words of the Canon of Dort on this subject. You see, the, the Canons of Dort were produced by the members of the Synod of Dort. And the Synod of Dort was a big deal in history, Reformed Protestant history, because it's the closest thing in 500 years that has ever happened to an international council of the Reformed Protestant Church. Nearly 100 different Reformed pastors representing their churches and their nations from nine different nations met for six months in the Synod of Dort in the early 1600s in the Netherlands. And they produced a document to summarize what Reformed Protestant Christians believe. Not just in this place or that place, but what they could all agree on together to say. And one of the things that they declared was this thing, this pastoral paragraph. And remember the poignancy of these things in the 17th century, when children died so frequently in childbirth or in early years of their life from disease. They said this, since we must make judgments about God's will from his word, it's not sentiment that makes them say this, it's their understanding of the teaching of the scriptures, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included, godly parents ought not to doubt. How pastoral is that? Don't doubt, they say. Godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. Now, why do the canons of Dort speak so confidently about the election and salvation of our children? It begins with the simple fact that God has promised that his faithfulness and love is not only for us, but also for our children after us. You see, in Genesis, God reveals himself to Abraham as the one who makes covenant not only with him, but also with his offspring after him. He says it every time. He tells Abraham that his covenant is for him, that it is also for his offspring after him. And God then instructs Abraham to circumcise his male children on the eighth day of their life as a sign of this covenant. Long before they could have faith, God says to do this. Have faith in an articulated way, at least. I 
think the question of their faith is a little more mysterious than that. The order of these things is important. Abraham does not circumcise his children in order to make them covenant members any more than we baptize our children to make them covenant members. Our children, even in the womb, friends, are already members of God's covenant by virtue of their identity as our offspring. And we baptize them after their birth as a sign and a seal of what is already theirs, their covenant membership that existed from the moment of their conception. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, God declares that he adopts our babies before they are born. In the womb, Calvin says, when he promises that he will be our God and the God of our descendants after us. Or, as the Apostle Paul puts it in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7, he teaches that the children of believers are holy and set apart for God. Even if only one of their parents is a believer, that is true for their children. The scriptures also fascinatingly provide ample testimony to the fact that not only does God enter into covenant with our children before their birth, but there are children, actually, the offspring of believers in some mysterious way, have a relationship with God on their own terms, even in the womb. This is what the scriptures teach. We heard this morning from Psalm 22, where David says to God, you are he who took me from my mother's womb. You made me trust you. When? Not when I was 13 or 18 or wherever. From my mother's breasts, David says. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Or as Psalm 71 says to God, Upon you I have leaned from before my birth, the psalmist says. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. Now, these psalms, like all the psalms, it should be noted, are not just private prayer journals. They are the corporate songs of the people of Israel and of the church today. They are meant to be sung by all the people of God. All of us are supposed to say and sing, You have I leaned, Father. Upon you have I leaned from before my mother's birth. I'm sorry, before my birth. You are he who took me from my womb. We're supposed to say those things to the Lord. What does that mean exactly? It's hard to say because none of us can remember, right, what it's like to be in the womb of our mothers or even what it's like to be a little baby. Those things are hidden from us. But the scriptures teach us that little babies, our little babies, even in the womb, even before birth, have the capacity to know and love God in some mysterious way. As we heard in our gospel reading this morning, John the Baptist, as a fetus, rejoiced and leapt in his mother's womb. With joy, Elizabeth says, because he had come near to Jesus, who had only recently himself been conceived in the womb of his mother Mary. 
I love that story in Luke 1. I love that it's included in the scriptures, right? Little in utero John, jumping and leaping in the womb of his mother, straining to be as close as possible to little in utero Jesus, who had just been conceived. He somehow knew still, John, in the womb, that this little baby in the womb was his Savior and Lord. However we think about the faith of our little ones and their trust in the Lord, it has to include things like that. And of course, we have the testimony of the Gospels to Jesus' own attitude towards children. Children whom he again and again dignified with his love and care and singled out in particular ways for his special blessing. Right? Luke tells us that when the crowds brought the infants to Jesus... And his disciples said, no more. Jesus took those babies in his arms and blessed them. Little infants, Luke says, and said, holding that child, let the little children come to me. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. All of these texts point towards the reality that we can be confident of the salvation of our children whom we lose to death, even in the womb. But here's the grace and mercy of God, friends. God has given us even more than that, so that we can be fully confident, fully assured of the status of our lost children before the Lord. The Holy Spirit has given us this passage in 2 Samuel 12, the story of David's child and his death after his sin with Bathsheba. And I'm so glad that the Spirit has given us this story, that it's included in the canon of the Scriptures, it's worth noting that this story is not really necessary for the overall plot of 2 Samuel. The writer could have said, and the child died. He could have summed it up in a sentence after Nathan's prophecy. But he didn't do that. He gave us a detailed story. And why did he do that? So that we could hear from David as a prophet as he speaks about our children and his. Notice what this story teaches us. David, when he hears Nathan's judgment that the child will die, intercedes and pleads with God for mercy. He fasts and he prays. He begs God to be merciful. And then when he hears that his child has died, he washes his face and anoints himself and goes into God's house to worship. And when his servants ask him why he does these things, David says, when the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Beloved, do you hear those words that are recorded for you by the Spirit's will that you might hear them? Do you hear what David is saying there about his baby? He does not, friend, express doubt or confusion. He does not say, I hope somehow 
I might maybe see my child again. No, after his child dies, David washes his face, he anoints himself, and he goes to the house of God to worship. And full of confidence, David, inspired by the Spirit, says, My child will not return to me, but I will go to him. And those words, which are such a gift from the Holy Spirit, we have a model for our own faith and confidence for our children's salvation after death. Friends, our lost children who have died will not return to us. But that's because they've gone before us. They've already gone on the journey that each of us in this room will one day undertake. For one day, we also will die. And then we will go to them. Such a beautiful picture that David paints here. What David is saying is that he believes and knows and is confident that his child is now with the Lord, and even more, that his child is waiting for him. Our children whom we have lost have gone before us, David says, and they wait for us to join them in the presence of God. Even though we are their parents, they have now in some sense advanced ahead of us. They have already walked the path that we will walk one day. And they have found already, not by faith, but by sight, what is waiting on the other side of death for all those who belong to God. And that is nothing less than their risen Savior and Lord. Jesus Christ. Beloved, I can't, I can't heal your wounds that you carry because of the death of your children. I'm not capable of that in any way, but I can tell you what comfort and solace the Lord has given to me over these past 15 years as I have wrestled with this myself and that comfort and solace is simply this. I believe upon the authority of God's word and I do not doubt at all that my lost child has gone before me and that he is safe now with Jesus and though I still carry my child's absence in my life to this day and still grieve his death, I can also say wholeheartedly in submission to the will of God that it is better for him to be with Jesus than to be here with me. It is better for him to be waiting for me, to be purified and made holy and perfectly safe with his Savior. Beloved, there is so much difficulty in this world. I mean, I don't have to tell you that, right? You know it in your own life. There is so much temptation, so much suffering and death 
so many tears and hardship and confusion that we experience every single day of our life here. But my child and your children don't have to experience that who have died in this way. My child has been spared all of those things. And I'm grateful for that. He was never tempted by sin in the way that I am. He was never tempted by rebellion or unbelief. He was never harmed by the sin of others. He never knew the suffering and difficulty of living a full life in this world. And he is not this day unhappy. He is not unhappy to have missed that. He does not weep because he missed that. He is now safe with Jesus. And yes, friends, it is true, as David says, he will not return to me. But one day, I will go to him. And I believe this to be true, not because of mere sentiment, but on the solemn authority of God's own word about himself and who he is. And thus I know that the God who has already saved my child and delivered him from eternal death is also the same God who will one day save and deliver me. And that is the best comfort and solace that I could ever possibly have in the face of my child's death. He has died, but he will be raised. And I also will die and be raised with him. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Spirit would minister to us this morning by your word, that we would ponder these things. I pray that you'd be near, particularly to those who have experienced what I have described this morning. That you would be the God of all comfort and peace, and hope by your Spirit, Lord. Grant us the faith to trust you, to trust your sovereign will, to trust your love and goodness. Give us faith, Father, to look forward to with full expectation 